0: You're listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad.
1: Hey, Chad. Yeah. Did you know that Raiders, PayPal, and Airbnb all conducted pretty dodgy brand tactics right in the beginning when they started their brands, their sites? I have a feeling you're about to tell me more about this. Yeah, in researching this episode, it was a really interesting finding. First, Reddit created thousands, tens of thousands of fake accounts, filling their own site with their own content. PayPal created bots that bought goods on eBay, (laughs) showing eBay the value of their payment system, and eventually eBay bought them for $1.5 billion. And then lastly, Airbnb created bots that automatically responded to housing posts on the rival websites of Craigslist.
0: Gaming the system. Gaming the system. You know, it kind of reminds me of something that Steve Jobs said you know, all the way back in ninety-six. He said, Picasso had a saying, good artists copy, great artists steal, and we've always been shameless about stealing great ideas.
1: That's kind of like what we're going to be talking about today. That line between when something is right and something is wrong is is very gray. And we'll we'll be unpacking that a lot more today. But it's very interesting that When things are successful at the end, you look back at these tactics and then you think, oh, that was really smart. It showed a lot of determination to do that. But if they failed, then it would have been very fraudulent or bad tactics for that matter. Yeah, and just for everybody listening, you'll hear the audio today. sounds a little bit different than usual. It's because Chad and myself are practicing our social distancing. We are now in, I think, week four of our California lockdown. So we're doing this remotely, which is kind of like different for us because we're usually in the same room, but yeah, we're, we're trying to do our bits and trying to stay sane, trying to stay healthy. How are you
0: guys doing through all this with all the kids? We're doing all right. We're really trying to focus on moving, getting out and going on walks and bike rides and doing sidewalk chalk with the kids and kind of whatever we can to just get some of that fresh outdoor air.
1: I know it's interesting, right? When we do go for walks though, how people, it's just, everything's just awkward you walk and then there's another family coming and then you look at each other and you try to figure out like who's going to cross the road first and then you both start crossing <laughs> yeah.
0: the road and one goes back and <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of a game of chicken
1: yeah it's it's crazy it's crazy <laughs> times you know but i'm like i said to you earlier today when we talked about this i do feel that when we look at the, how we can see the the curve that everybody's talking about going a little bit lower and and not as fast as everybody anticipated in california it, it feels like we're we're part of a mission trying to beat this. So it feels good.
0: And and that's the cool thing. I mean, like in our neighborhood, just today, a few hours ago, one of our neighbors, their kid had a birthday and we did a big car parade past their house. Everybody oh, was honking and waving amazing. signs. And yeah, that is one of the really cool positive side effects of this whole thing is just to see how everyone's coming together to support each other and connect with each other and share love. So it's pretty cool to see that happening.
1: Yeah. I don't want to digress too much about today's episode, but Emerson, our five-year-old little boy this morning, I could hear him wake up and then literally running upstairs, downstairs, I could hear his feet stomping and he said he had (laughs) a really, really amazing dream and he dreamed that the virus was gone and we were all outside playing and riding our bikes with our friends again. Wow it really made me kind of sad in a way it's difficult yeah. how the little people are processing this and they can't go outside and they can't play with their friends and it's difficult times but anyway so our hearts goes to everybody in the world dealing with this right now you know try to stay sane and We'll try to pump out as many of these episodes as we can to try to entertain you guys.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because once uh, you've made it through the Tiger King, there's pretty much not much else to do at this point.
1: Then there is the Marketing Rescue Podcast. (laughs) Yes. There's only seven episodes. We're trying to scoop (laughs) out that audience. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But Anyway, let's get into the show. So when we originally started researching this, we were going to tell the story about Theranos. And I'm sure everybody has heard about it and watched the HBO documentary and there's there's quite a lot of content about it. So we didn't wanna just do a regurgitation of something else of the HBO documentary and something that really stood out to both of us when we watched that and when we researched this, it's just the psychological aspect of the whole faking and making thing that they talked about. Yeah, And they touched on that very quickly then they told a story about her and her actions and everything else. But there's a much larger discussion to be held about faking and making it within product development, within Silicon Valley and within marketing. And I think that's kind of like what prompted today's episode. Yeah,
0: I mean, for me, that's the most interesting part is this idea that in marketing, we always talk about aspirations and taking a brand from where it currently is to where we want it to go. And there's just an inherent element of that that is aspirational. And so how far can you ethically push aspiration? And when does that change from becoming this really positive thing of changing perception in a positive way and building the perception you want around your brand? When does that kind of cross into not only gray area, but then beyond that into something that's no longer good or positive.
1: Yeah, and I think today we'll cover some of the psychology that goes on the thought process of why people do that. And more importantly, why they feel okay when people go into the gray area and how we, how we as humans justify that. And then we'll tell two quick stories just about Theranos, where that happened, and it failed horribly, as we all know, and all the consequences that led to that. Yeah. And then another instance where the same actions were taken, but it actually ended up very well. So with that, let, let's get started. So f- for me personally, watching that movie, there's a section, a few clips of Dan Eerly, which is a behavioral economist within the documentary and what he said and how he approached everything was super interesting to me. And that's exactly it. As marketers and as people that try to get into the emotion of our target audiences, behavioral economists are super fascinating to me because they take that behavioral aspect and they tie it all the way through into purchase behavior and what invokes a specific action as it relates to buying stuff or how we feel about a brand. And I think that is just super interesting. So anyway, so Dan Early, he's a Israel-American professor and author. He currently serves as a James B. Duke professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University in Durham. And here's a cool quote of him. He said, I became engrossed with the idea that we repeatedly and predictably make the wrong decisions in many aspects in our lives, and the research could help change some of these patterns."
0: Like, I always feel like I'm right whenever I have a, an opinion or a point of view. And it is really interesting in that most probably I'm not right very frequently. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Dan really touches on.
1: Yeah. So in the documentary, he talks about this DICE experiment, which I find extremely fascinating. For me, was one of the most amazing takeouts from the entire documentary. And that's kind of what sparked today's episode theme of more looking on the psychology yeah. of why we fake it and make it, or more importantly, why it's okay to fake it and make it and why it nearly is an expectation as it relates to innovation and product development.
0: Yep. So for the people who haven't seen the HBO documentary about Theranos, I'll just kind of quickly explain what this dice experiment was that Dan set up. he set up this experiment where he had people roll a dice but before they they roll, they were asked to silently choose. They weren't, they weren't allowed to tell him whether or not they choose the top or the bottom number. And after they roll the dice, they would tell him which side they chose. And they were paid a small amount based on their choice. And the higher number that they rolled, the more they were paid. And the lower number that they rolled, the less they were paid. And the dice is always the
1: opposite side, right? So there's a six and a one... Right, It's the opposite side. So it's even, it's very easy to cheat, in other words.
0: Right. A couple of rolls, and you'll catch on how to kind of game the game, so to speak. Yep. How to hack the game. So perfectly honest people always chose before they roll the dice, and then they would say what they chose, no matter what the outcome was, and they would get a higher amount on average half of the time, which would make st- sense statistically. But then a dishonest person would frequently report whichever side gives them the higher payout. So they would, they would get luckier somehow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because if you just do nothing, you're going to win half of the time. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so when you start beating the 50% chance, you know, you're cheating. So he took this a step further. He then hooked up a lie detector to everybody and they found that it could generally actually tell when people are lying. And then they told all the participants that all their winnings are going to go towards a charity of their choice. And then they played the game again. And surprisingly, the people were still being dishonest, but the lie detector could not show that they were actually lying. So the lie detector could not pick up their tension, even though they were being dishonest. They were blatantly lying, but because they were lying and the benefit of their lies would aid their nonprofit or their charity that they chose from. And this was a major, major insight.
0: So they didn't feel that they were wrong, right? Because if I'm doing it for a good cause, if I'm cheating for a good cause, then that's not a a bad thing. So I don't have this cognitive dissonance or like mental tension between what I'm doing and what my beliefs are. That's exactly it. what my view of myself is.
1: And this year, this insight is how a lot of people rationalize some really bad and dodgy decisions that they make while they're faking and making it. Because they believe that what they're creating, so think of the Theranos thing, and we'll talk about this more in a second. She believed that she was going to solve a major healthcare problem and save millions and millions of lives. So because of that thing, because of her and her mind in this analogy, that was her nonprofit, that was her charity that she was winning for, all her dishonest decisions that she was making was justified. That's just amazing. So he summarized this study and he's a great quote of him. He said, cheating in the service of altruism isn't really cheating in the brain and is therefore morally justifiable, which is crazy.
0: Yeah, it really explains how good people can do bad things. So let's go ahead and listen to that now.
1: Now, in the economic theory, cheating is a very simple cost-benefit analysis. You say, what's the probability of being caught? How much do I stand to gain from cheating? And how much punishment would I get if I get caught? And you weigh these options out, you do the simple cost-benefit analysis, and you decide whether it's worthwhile to commit the crime or not.
0: So that was actually from a TED talk of his that we'll link to in the show notes. And it's really amazing. I'd encourage all of you to go out and check that out. Absolutely. But he talks about this concept of a personal fudge factor, like a moral cheating fudge factor, that we have this allowance and this range within. There's an acceptable amount of cheating that we kind of like all feel comfortable with because it falls within a threshold that doesn't necessarily damage the way that we see ourselves, doesn't damage our ability to kind of look in the mirror and feel okay about ourselves, and that within that range, there's a lot of cheating that people will do. So he did you know, a number of different tests in his lab to kind of play out this idea, and one of those was that he did another test where he was paying people in tokens for giving correct answers math problems. The more problems that they were able to complete, the more tokens that they would win. And then they would grab those tokens and then they would walk 12 feet to the side and exchange those tokens for cash. And what he found is that the further away from the actual cash value of something that people get, the more likely they are to cheat. So people would ask for a much higher amount of tokens than they really earned than they would if they were asking directly for cash. And so there was just more cheating that would happen there. So he went on to say that it's easier for people to justify things when it's not attached to an actual cash value or or the further away it gets from that cash value. For example, most people wouldn't feel uncomfortable about taking a pen or a pencil home from the office, but they would feel very uncomfortable reaching into a cash register and pulling a dime out.
1: Yeah, And also something that he said in another article that I found about him he said that employees tend to steal more from employers when they feel they're being mistreated. So when they feel that they're being mistreated, they justify (laughs) taking stuff from the company, which is also interesting.
0: And then the other thing that I think was really interesting that he found was that when people saw an outsider cheating, cheating amongst the group kind of like went down. It kind of raised the level of awareness of kind of reminding people.
1: Anxiety, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But when a colleague cheated, then cheating went up amongst their group.
1: Yeah, and he got actually a few different... I can't remember which university it was, but he got students into his lab where they did this exact same test that you were just talking about. And then they would have an actor sitting among them. And the actor would wear the same university jersey of everybody being there. And then he would cheat first. And then during that time, the cheating would go up. Everybody would not just copying, but they would think it's okay. And they did the exact same thing again, where the actor would be wearing a different school's jersey and he would also be cheating and then the cheating went drastically down because it, it just shows you that people feel comfortable with their own peers influencing them of how they feel about cheating. It's really interesting that people are influenced by their peers as it relates to cheating. And that's kind of like what, yeah. what made us think through the psychological lens of this episode versus just unpacking what I did.
0: Right, because it's super commonplace in business, this term, fake it till you make it, right? It's almost like the way Silicon Valley operates, in a sense, in certain situations. And it's kind of just this cultural thing that we have in in the U.S., certainly, but, but definitely within capitalism at large and marketing
1: it's nearly like becoming an expectation in certain aspects it's become like you need to be that way in order to be innovative
0: yeah and especially when it comes to branding and digital innovation there's a lot of ideation that happens before something becomes a reality and so how much of that is then influenced by fake it till you make it and by kind of pushing the boundaries of again aspirationalness? kind of to a point that's too far, and does the ends justify the means in that? Like, if you can get to something that is a big change and a big advancement, is it okay to do some things that are possibly even deceptive in terms of what that looks like? And and telling that story, I think, is a really interesting question that has been answered by some of the stories that we're going to talk about some more on this episode.
1: Yeah, so deception. (laughs) Let's let's, <laughs> let's talk about deception. So these are two stories that had very similar actions but a very different outcome. And the first one is Theranos. So why don't we talk about Elizabeth? It's very at a high level. And again, if you haven't seen the HBO documentary, go and watch it because it's just very very interesting stuff. But let's just give like an overview of what she did and why she's in such a pickle today.
0: So the quick recap is that Elizabeth Holmes has this idea that she's going to revolutionize blood testing. And she founds a company called Theranos based on the idea that you can get a wide panel of blood tests done over 200 different biomarkers done off of a tiny finger prick worth of blood. So she had these things called nanotainers, and it just held like literally a few drops worth of blood. From those few drops worth of blood, they would be placed into a cartridge that would go into a machine that automatically runs those tests, provides reports there on site without the need for lab personnel or sending it off to another lab or waiting large amounts of time. And she says that usually we get blood tests on a yearly basis. So it's a very much of an incomplete
1: picture that we have. And with her product, we're going to be getting weekly or ongoing data points that we can make preventative decisions on, which, I mean, that's amazing. Sign me up. Totally.
0: Yeah. And I know for both of us, we're super dialed into our health. We track everything from workouts to nutrition, et cetera. And and that's a big wave that is coming on board with the power of digital is the ability to take control of your health. And she was tapping into that. It's a really smart approach. The idea was that these machines would be placed locally at centers, on-site at pharmacies, doctors' offices, wellness centers, whatever the case might be, and you'd have much more accessibility to your health information. So she raised hundreds of millions, and the company at one point was actually valued over $9 billion.
1: It's crazy. And she started when she was 19 years old, right? And she... She pulled in a lot of very well-known people that was on her board and and became very involved within the actual company itself. She sets it up that blood testing and lab testing has been the same for the last 50 years. And Theranos is taking that whole industry and putting on it its head. And that's that's been successful in other industries multiple times. Think about the iPhone, yeah. think about Tesla electric cars. So people were like, just expecting it, they were expecting this to work they, they bought into the dream so to speak but the problem is they never really had a functional prototype and she actually called these boxes which was pretty small, the Edison and the Edison was supposed to do these 200 different blood tests from this little nano capsule that they put inside of it and at their height the timer it worked the best they could do one test so <laughs> <laughs>
0: One out of 200.
1: One out of 200. The problem is she took the fake it and make it thing too far. And this is where it gets interesting to me because they had these boxes at Walgreens, I think first in Phoenix or somewhere in Arizona, and then they started spanning it across the country a little bit more, but they actually sold this idea to Walgreens where people could come in and they could get this nano blood and right there and then they'll get the results. And this was extremely deceitful because what they actually ended up doing is drawing normal blood, running and racing into their lab, using the same semen lab equipment that Quest Diagnostics would use, and then racing back to Walgreens and giving them information. But the real problem is that she lied to the public, she lied to her employees, the investors, the customers, the patients, and this was her downfall because... A lot of the people that worked for her started feeling that hey what we are doing here could cost lives there's a section in the documentary where they talk about they were doing syphilis tests because they started adding that to the criteria of what they were testing for and some of the data was wrong that they were giving people so if you think you might be having syphilis and you get a negative test that could have a severe impact on people around you later on in life so it was actually like a revolution of people internally that were starting to turn on her because they just couldn't deal with it from a moral standpoint. And today, she is waiting for two counts of federal charges of conspiracy of committed wire fraud and nine counts of normal wire fraud. And I think it's been pushed out to August 2020. And if she gets convicted of this, she could go to prison for 20 years. So the interesting thing to me in this, yes, she lied to... Her investors, and she lied to her customers and the patients and everything else. But I know, and researching this episode, there are so many other startups that has done similar things, but their product became successful towards the end. And as soon as their product became successful, then all their previous decision making and, and actions that they took was justifiable. And that's the thing that really blows me away. So. If she actually pulled it off right towards the end and her Edison machine started testing these 200 things, they could figure out how to actually make it work. Everybody would have said, like, she was such a visionary. Right. She had perseverance. She pushed past all the naysayers and she developed this amazing thing. And that's where there's a problem for me, because you can't just erase all the dishonest actions you've had up until this point. And then just because your product becomes successful, it gets taken away.
0: Right. And she just pushed her own personal fudge factor (laughs) for cheating way outside of what you would call maybe the standard deviation statistically, right? Like it was kind of a slippery slope where one bad decision led to another and then to another. And she just kind of boxed herself into this point where she kept trying to fabricate a false narrative and it, it turned into something where instead of innovating and move fast and break things, it turned into then gaslighting and deception. And and that's (laughs) a, a big problem.
1: There's a reason why her machine was called Edison, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she emulated somebody who, and I idolized somebody really, who is the flip side of this coin.
1: And the funny thing is flip side of your coin, but I only realized most of what I know today about Edison researching this episode. Yeah. I just thought he was an amazing inventor that created the light bulb. I didn't know he was what you were about to tell us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that is very much because the way that we understand history is controlled by the access that we have to information. And that has been very limited in, in the past in the U.S. Particularly before the internet, we knew what we knew based on textbooks and what the historians chose to, what perspective they chose to provide in those textbooks. Now we have significant additional sources of information, the internet, etc., that we can use to kind of formulate our own opinions and, and surface more information. So to your point, Thomas Edison, he was the inventor of the light bulb, at least as how we commonly understand him to be. In September of 1878, Edison announced that he had an epiphany because he had been working on the light bulb for some time, and really, the light bulb already existed. It just wouldn't survive for very long. So if you flip the light bulb on and off, it would destroy the filament, could only burn for about 15 seconds. So he was really trying to improve upon previous light bulb designs. And in 1878, he announced publicly that he had an epiphany and that his incandescent bulb was just six weeks away. But there was one little problem with that and that he was completely lying. Yeah.
1: He did that to raise money. The exact same reason why Elizabeth did what she did. That's right. Up until this point, they're still on par with one another.
0: That's right. Within a month of that fabrication is actually when he started the Edison Electric Light Company with Mm -hmm. $300,000 from a dozen backers. Mm -hmm. This is a quote from Thomas Edison. He says, with the process I have just discovered, I can produce a thousand lights, I, 10,000 from a single machine. Indeed, the number may be said to be infinite. And at that point, he didn't know how to make the incandescent light bulb work, let alone have a machine for mass production or a process for how to produce the light bulb in any <laughs> way, shape, or form. But he knew he had a, a team of really brilliant scientists that he could put on the project. Mm-hmm. And so he he did that. So months and months drag on, and his investors and the public start to doubt Thomas Edison. He leverages his relationship with Edwin Marshall Fox, who was a journalist for the New York Herald, to essentially just prevent his investors from withdrawing their support their capital and kind of killing the project and, of course, his reputation in the process. So Edison very slyly gives Fox shares in his company in exchange for glowing coverage in order to buy himself some time to just kind of spin his way out of this lie and cross his fingers and hope they can solve the problem. Crazy. Totally.
1: Yeah. So David Barron writes in a book... American Eclipse, he said, people began to wonder if the wizard from Menlo Park was a sham. And a year later, after thousands of experiments, Edison's team found the carbon filament, as we know today, that allowed the bulb to endure switching on and off for more than 15 seconds at a time, which is kind of like the whole purpose of a light bulb, right? You need to burn for as long as you can. In an article by Will Yakowitz of ink.com, he writes, "Baron says Edison's success did not hinge on what he learned about filament technology and hinged on how he handled and manipulated the press and how he used self-confidence to create hype and get people to believe in him. It's what he learned about people, Barron said. So finding the solution to the light bulb was only half the problem, right? He also needed power within the city that can actually run it. So he hired an immigrant, Nikolai Tesla, which is what the Tesla company is named of, which I actually think less people know about his role within all this because he wasn't as publicized um, at the time. He was 28 years old and when he moved from Paris to the US, he had four cents in his pockets,
0: a bundle of clothes.
1: And in June, 1884, he started working for Edison Machine Works.
0: And so Edison is having trouble with his DC generator system. He's got all these generators around town and they're just constantly breaking down and having a lot of problems and he he just can't get them fixed. So he offers Tesla a $50,000 bonus to fix them, which in today's money would be worth somewhere around $1.3 million. So it's this huge, Mm -hmm. massive bonus. So Tesla takes it very seriously, of course, and goes off for about two months, just really hits the problem very hard. Fixes it actually solves the problem with the generators, and so then when he comes back to Thomas Edison to claim his bonus, Edison responds to him laughingly, just kind of dismissing him, saying, Tesla, you don't understand our American humor. Crazy, so he just completely exploited Nikola Tesla and kind of just like betrayed him. So, of course, Tesla is justifiably very upset and he quits and starts his own attempt at supplying electricity for the light bulb. Eventually, he ends up winning that battle, supplying what eventually would be a much better AC system to Westinghouse. And that, of course, infuriated Edison even more. And Edison you know, had a lot of kind of smear tactics executed in the press.
1: Smear tactics. He <laughs> wants electrocutors and elephants in the city close to Tesla's machinery and say, this is what happens if you're going to start using AC power. He also electrocuted a monkey, an actual real monkey, live in front of people and again said if you use AC power, this will happen. He ran ads in newspapers with Tesla's name and the AC power grid that he was proposing or putting together with a picture of an electric chair saying that this is what it's going to get used for. He played really, really nasty. He did some really, really bad stuff in order to derail Tesla's success.
0: So, I mean, this is kind of like the same type of behaviors we saw from Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, but very different outcomes. I mean, we just in general kind of look to Edison culturally as this icon of innovation, the wizard from Menlo Park. He's on the walls of conference rooms of businesses around the globe, held up as kind of this beacon of how to invent, how to innovate and how to bring new technology to the world. And do you think that is because his products actually work towards
1: the end after he had his epiphany that he's going to solve this and he has solved this, and he's working towards it and, and, erased all this money and a month went by and people said, okay, where is it? And he said, Oh, sorry, I, I didn't do it. He would have been a
0: fraud. He's faking and making it wouldn't have worked. Right. And so was he a fraud who got lucky? Was he, intentionally a fraud or did he really truly believe that he was doing the right thing and just rationalized it?
1: It's an interesting question because I think that Elizabeth believed right until the end that all the deceitfulness that she was doing was justified by her larger mission of saving
0: millions of people. Right. But her product didn't work and therefore she was a fraud. It's just fascinating because I think of kind of this juxtaposition of aspirational... And and that is the one of the core fundamental components of brand marketing is being able to understand where you want to move your brand perception, right? Which inherently is aspirational in nature,
1: right.
0: and then creating campaigns to move you from point A to point B. Like, where's that line of where aspirational becomes deceptive? Where determination? becomes ego or protection becomes obfuscation or
1: maximization becomes exploitation. It's the other side of the same coin that in one instance is really bad. In another instance is really good, but very often it's the same action that people have.
0: Yeah. And how powerful is a personal brand? Like Edison really understood how powerful his personal brand was. Really it was his massive team of scientists that ran the experiments that created a lot of the innovations. A lot of people don't know that Thomas Edison was primarily an office guy. He dealt with the press. He sat in the office, he coordinated stuff, but they realized that having everything live under the Thomas Edison brand would get them much, much farther by kind of like centralizing that credibility and that brand equity into a single figure that they could kind of hold up as a hero.
1: And that's a very interesting take there as well. That's something that Elizabeth did not do. She surrounded herself by people that would not be naysayers, scientists, or really smart medical personnel. She just didn't hire smart people around her to help her build this. I mean the I think the head scientists Try to sue and eventually committed suicide. So today we're so overloaded as it relates to information and connectivity with our audiences, our customers, our investors, if you start up your competition, your employees, that we are starting to see a shift that today's brands and products or the product development teams have access to so much more resources through internet and social media and conferences where their brand becomes super important. And then in return of this, it makes the actual brand users, being it very often also employees, far more savvier and more informed. And this is becoming increasingly harder, this fudge factor that Dan was talking about, fudging the numbers or like in Silicon Valley, they refer to it as like the companies running on vapors. This is becoming harder and harder. We're more living in a society where people expect transparency, and that's becoming the norm with our customers, our consumers, and also our employees when we run a specific company. So we are starting to see a shift further away from the whole fake it to make it thing, which was at its peak in the 90s, just before the dot-com boom.
0: Great companies don't fear telling investors what's going on. They don't fear telling Wall Street what's going on. Their customers, employees, in fact, they're they're very open and vulnerable with the human element of innovation and progressive ideation and development. And so there's this kind of question that comes to mind which is does that transparency actually kill innovation? Does it right. drive it forward? What effect does that have on the innovation process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we fast forward in 10 years from now, as transparency becomes more and more an expectation, we'll see what impact that has on on innovation.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think people are really moving away from the fake it until you make it mentality and more toward transparency. And, and with that transparency comes a lot more responsibility. But that responsibility, I guess, it's always there. It's never changed the responsibility for doing the right thing and the fact that it's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to lie about it or run away from it. I think that just is coming more to the forefront as we see examples like Theranos, et cetera, where mistakes then become something that is kind of doubled and tripled down on in in kind of a, a very destructive way. And so at the end of the day, as we've seen on this show, and in fact, in episode two, as we talked about Michael Bloomberg, transparency and the best intentions and marketing and all of that can't solely build a brand and a successful company at the root of any powerful brand is a solid product, something that works, something that is legitimate and something that people want.
1: Well, that's a great Spot for us to wrap this up. I hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.